from the voice they start I could hear you call my name to a world apart to a life of love and wait with the beating heart in this simple silent take safe within your arms quiet by the light of grace there in the cradle of life you held my breath and here at the table of wine and broken bread i find all i need you are all i need in the air i breathe in the joy of being hidden in your time until Singing purpose into place, even in the void, in the sudden wake of pain, when the shadows join, still I'm in the light of grace, there in the waves of this life, you hold my breath, and here at the table of wine and broken In the air I breathe In the joy
Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Association for Reform Theology meeting. Uh, this is our third meeting, and uh, we've had a lot of fun reading uh, uh, Bobbing Together. And I want to give a few announcements and say a prayer before I introduce uh, Weston to come up and introduce our guest this evening. Um, we, uh, all reports look like we're going to have good weather on Sunday. And so we're kind of watching this hurricanes, what is it? What's the hurricane name? Like Zeta or something? I, I can't remember. It's, 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 a, it's a crazy end of the alphabet. Um, and we're watching that, but all reports look like we will be having one service at 10 o'clock outside like we have. And, and it's, a, it's a great time, so please uh, come there. We will be having a congregational meeting prior to that outside service. So if the outside service is at 10 o'clock, one combined service, then we will have our congregational meeting in the sanctuary at uh, 9 o'clock. And, and masks will be required. And uh, it is also daylight savings time. So uh, there's that too. And we're also baptizing Weston's baby boy, Judah. Uh, there's that too. And then after our service, we'll be having a fall fest. There is that too. So it's quite a, a busy Sunday. Please consider inviting your friends out for the fall fest. Uh, two weeks ago, we were outside, we had 270. Not too shabby for COVID season. Uh, God is good. Um, so let's, uh, let's spend some time today uh, studying the Word, studying uh, the person of God and the Trinity. And uh, before we do so, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do uh, come together today to seek to know you truer and deeper and to uh, study what one of your great saints has said about you as he studied your Word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be in this place and among us that we might come to know you and love you deeper, truer, and richer. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Weston, you want to come on up? So I'm really excited about having <clears throat> Dr. Bogus here with us. I've, I've had him for four, three courses, four courses. I've had him for a couple systematics, um, for apologetics, and for philosophy. And uh, I've really, really enjoyed... Uh, you know, Dr. Bogus has this great way of you asking a really stupid question and him rewording it so it doesn't sound so stupid, and then he answers it for you, and it's it's really nice. Um, and so, I've asked a lot of those, and um, but he so he, he teaches all those courses. He's the the associate professor of philosophy and theology at RTS in Jackson. <clears throat> he's been here since 2008. Um, he he's got a couple books. Is his reformal theology is that out yet? Is that still forthcoming? Not to the fall, so still forthcoming. Um, and then he's got China's Reforming Churches right here. And so I picked this up, fully intent to read over the summer, and then I realized that I might have to read it for a class. And I didn't want to be like a year removed and try to play the card of, I've read that. Um, and so I, I'm holding off on it. But China's Reforming Churches, so um, when the, I'm really excited about the, uh, the Reform Moral Theology coming out. It's going to be good. Um, he is a teaching elder in the PCA. I um, mean, we are blessed to have him here. When, when I asked him about coming and, and help leading this, this group tonight, um, he, he said yes, like really quick, and it kind of surprised me. And it it kind of worried me, too, because I thought the being of God and the Trinity, maybe Dr. Bogus has read just enough of my papers to feel like I do not need to be talking about this up here. And so he was like, no, 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 I'm coming. I'll be there. Uh, I'll handle this. I'm not sure. But um, but y'all join me and welcome Dr. Bogus. He comes up and talks about the being of God and the Trinity. Thank you, Wilson. 
Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. I'm really excited that you have an association for Reformed theology. Um, yeah, I've not had that at any of the churches I've ever served, so <laughs> I'm glad that you have that. Well, you have the book, and I trust that you've read the chapter. I'm not actually going to just walk through the chapter sort of paragraph by paragraph or subheading by subheading. Uh, Wes gave me permission to just sort of get up here and talk about the Trinity. <laughs> and so that's, that's how I want to do it, and I want to do it from Scripture as well as uh, going over some of the things that Bob Inc., well, much of what Bob Inc. discusses, and, uh, and almost in the order that Bob Inc. discusses them. But before we get going, let me just read to us. I have to turn there for a second, but let's read. It's a passage that is no doubt very familiar to all of you. It's the ending of the gospel according to Mark, and it, it's the Great Commission. And if you want to think about how central this doctrine of God's tri-personality, the, the Trinity is, to Christian faith and to our life as disciples of Christ, we really don't need to look any further or any, any place else than to just think about the Great Commission itself. Let me, let me read. I'm going to read the whole context here, starting with verse 16 through verse 20. Now the eleven disciples went, you know, that's the twelve without Judas, and the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And here's what they're to do with that. He commissions them, he authorizes them, he gives them a mandate, he gives them the mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm going to come back to this passage from time to time in my comments and perhaps also in our question and answer time together. But the question I want to start with is, because the doctrine of the Trinity can seem rather esoteric sometimes, I suspect. So the question I want to start with is, what's at stake? What's the big deal about the doctrine of the Trinity? Do we really need to understand the doctrine of the Trinity? Is it really important for us? How does it shape our life? How does it sh why does it, is it so central to what it means to be a disciple? For you to go out and make disciples through the preaching of the gospel baptizing. This is how you're bringing people in, under the lordship of Christ and into being a disciple of Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So what's at stake? Well, the first thing that I want to point out is the true identity of God is at stake. You can think about what First John or what the Apostle John writes in his first letter in chapter 2, verse 23. If you do not have the Son, you do not have the Father. Anyone who denies the Son does not have the Father. And that's really a Trinitarian statement. It's a statement about Christ, to be sure, but it's also a Trinitarian statement because no other belief, no other faith, no other religion has the Son and the Father. None other are Trinitarian. And what the Apostle is saying is that Trinity defines Christian identity. Because Trinity defines the true identity of God. 
And if you don't have a doctrine of the Trinity, that is, if your God is not Trinitarian, then he's not the true God. Because if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. You don't have God. And you could think about it. I don't know how familiar you might be with the history of, of ideas in Western civilization or even more broadly in the world. First off, I would point out that there's no, other, there's no other belief system that has ever imagined anything like the Trinity at all. Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, is not things that people sit around and devise or stumble into when they're doing philosophy or when they're thinking religiously or when they're trying to come up with, with a concept of what a religious life would look like or what God must be like. This is the kind of thing that we would not know and we would never think if it were not revealed to us. It's a mystery in that regard because God himself is a mystery. You can find three gods, polytheistic faiths. You can find three-headed monsters in mythology, but you don't find anything like the Trinity. It's unique to Christianity because it's unique to the living God. So philosophically, people tend to come up with kinds of monotheism at times, but they're deistic, they're, they're monopersonal. There's only one God, they're Unitarian. Judaism, contemporary Judaism, rejects the Son because it rejects the Trinity. And therefore, it does not have the true and the living God because it, de it rejects this fundamental tenet of who God is. And if you're denying the truth about God, then you don't have the true God. Islam believes many of the th same things about God that we would say, that he's almighty, that he's compassionate, that he's merciful, that he's just, that he's righteous, that he's the creator of all things, and so on. They have many of that, not all, but they have many of the attributes that we would affirm about God, but what they don't have is Trinity. And if you don't have Trinity, you don't have Son, you don't have Spirit, you don't have Father, you don't have God. So, what's at stake? The true identity of God. And it's only because God has revealed himself to be Trinitarian, to be tripersonal, if you will, that we ourselves would have ever dared to believe such a thing or to confess such a thing about our God. So it's God who says, this is what I'm like, and this is who I am, and this is how I am. And we have received that, and we believe that. So the first thing that's at stake is the identity of God. The second thing that's at stake is our knowledge and enjoyment of God. That just goes with the territory. If you don't have the true God, then you have no means to, to know him or to enjoy him. Knowing and walking with God. You know, how do you understand what it is to be, well, as, first Peter, or as Peter talks about in his first letter, to be temples of the living God? If you don't have a concept of the Trinity... And that is of the Father who reigns, of Christ who is your Redeemer and has reconciled you to God, and of the Spirit who indwells you and who fills you and fills the church so that we become living stones in a living temple of the living God. If you don't have a doctrine of the Trinity, you don't have the categories, you don't have the, the, the concept of God that you need to even be able to make sense of some of the most precious truths about us and our relationship to God and what it is to know him and to relate to him rightly, to trust in him, to believe in him, to be indwelled 
by him, the worship of God. We pray in the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. Indeed, we can pray to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. We speak as we read Scripture with the authority of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is God the Father who has caused us to have this revelation of himself. It is through the Son that we have this revelation of himself. And it is the word of the Spirit who inspired the human authors to write just what he wanted to be written for our good and for our benefit. Everything in Christianity is Trinitarian in this sense. And so our knowledge of God and our enjoyment of God is at stake in this. You are the temple of the living God. You pray to the living God. You commune with the living God. You praise God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are blessed at his command. May the, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, here meaning the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so the blessing of God rests upon you as the fullness of God's presence as, as a tri-personal being, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, this gets a little bit more profound, perhaps. Because when we think about our knowledge and enjoyment of God, we start asking questions like, well, who is Jesus Christ? And if you don't have a concept of a Trinitarian God, then you're not going to be able to maintain the deity of Christ. You're not going to, be know, you're not going to understand how he can be both God and praying to his Father. If your God's just one person, then Jesus is no longer divine. Or if Jesus is God in the flesh, but there's only one person in your Godhead, then heaven is empty as it were. And he's praying to no one. Do you see what I'm saying? And so, to understand who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God, you have to be Trinitarian. There's no other way to hold that together. There's no other way to get to the true identity of Jesus without also having a true concept of the identity of God as Trinitarian. He is God the Son, the eternal Son of God who has taken on flesh and dwelt among us. But let's go one step further. What then does the cross mean? If God is the Father, the Son, who becomes incarnate in Jesus Christ, and the Spirit, who is at work in and through Jesus Christ, and also dwelling with his people, how do we understand what's going on in the cross? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us that the cross is the demonstration of God's love for his enemies, sinners like us in Romans 5. And you can put quite a point on that once you're Trinitarian in your thinking and you realize that that one incarnate dying on the cross to redeem us from our sins is none other than the Son of the living God, the eternal God the Son himself. Does your God love you? Here's the measure of how much he loves you. The Son, eternally dwelling in the presence 
well, eternally dwelling in his glory that is rightfully his as the eternal son of God, laying all that aside to come down to be among us, to put up with our sin, to go to the cross, to die under our punishment, under our curse. That's your God who's doing those things. Yes, it's a man. He's fully human. But he's just not some bloke off the street. This is your God who has taken on this mission upon himself to come and to save you. Now we begin to understand something of just the marvel of what Paul is talking about when he says, here's the demonstration of how much your God loves you in Jesus Christ. And so we can go one more step, perhaps. I don't know if it's another step or what, but let's just turn. It's like a diamond, and you're just turning it to see one other facet, one more facet of it, as it were. And we can think about what in the world does it mean for us to be adopted? Christ secures for us our adoption. Though we are sinners, aliens and strangers in the world, without God and without hope in our sin, through Christ we are adopted Now we can pray as Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You understand the the profundity of what Jesus is saying to us? He's telling us this is the way you ought to pray. You need to learn to call on the Father as I call on the Father. The author of Hebrews refers to him as our brother. That is the son. We are adopted. And now his father is our father and he is our brother. And he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. And now the spirit whom the father and the son have always enjoyed in union together from all eternity now indwells us. So that that same power that was at work in Jesus Christ, raising him from the dead, now indwells you. So that you might be strengthened in the inner man, Paul says in Ephesians, to know just how much God loves you. Because he loves you with the same love with which he loves Jesus Christ, who was his son incarnate in whom he was well pleased. And now he's taken you, though you were an alien and a stranger and an enemy and hostile and in rebellion against him in your natural sinfulness. Me too. I'm not just talking about you here, right? (laughs) And he has taken us into communion with him. Into Now, we do not come up into the Godhead so that we become a fourth member of the Godhead, okay? Don't don't go there. (laughs) We do not become divine. But what we do, what we are enabled to do, is to come into the full enjoyment of all the privileges and benefits that belong to Christ. And now we are fellow heirs with him of all that he has won and secured for us, who is the Son of God in human form, accomplishing these things on our behalf and for our benefit. So what's at stake? Well, pretty much everything. Our whole salvation. And if God's identity is at stake, and if our true knowledge and ability to enjoy him is at stake, then so also is our identity. 
we do not understand who we are if we don't begin to understand ourselves in, the, in, the, in this Trinitarian framework. As those who've been beloved by the Father, redeemed through the Son, and are indwelled by the Spirit, and being sanctified in the Spirit. That's who we are. And that's why in baptism, the very name of God, the Trinitarian name of God, is placed upon us. He is claiming us for himself. And, he's, and now he belongs to us, even as we belong to him. We've taken up into communion with our triune God. So the identity of Christianity is at stake. Our identity as Christians, as disciples of Christ, is at stake. The authority with which the church acts in the world and speaks on behalf of God and represents God to a lost and perishing world is at stake. The mission of the church, therefore, is at stake. And so is all the blessing in which we rest ourselves, that benediction that belongs to us. So let me, let me think a little bit about what is this doctrine then? What is the content of this doctrine? And I know I've gone on for quite a while with this already, haven't I? So I've got to do this in 10 minutes or so. But nevertheless, what is this doctrine of the Trinity? What, what is it that we teach? Well, you've read your chapter. Let me, let me just point out something right out of the gate here. And that is that, that the doctrine of the Trinity is revealed in Scripture from the very beginning, but not with the clarity of light that you would see it if you weren't already thinking about it when you start reading Genesis 1. It's like Warfield said, the doctrine of the Trinity, like many things about Revelation, is progressive. And the further we go in God's redemptive purpose, and we live very late in the last days, so we have all the benefit of all that he has revealed to this point. And so we have all of that for us. And so we're in a position where we can see things that people who lived in earlier times could not see with the clarity that we see them. But what God said to them was not in contradiction to the fuller revelation that we have. And you can actually see, if you go back to Genesis 1 and you read Genesis 1 in light of John 1, you can see Trinity is in the first four verses of your Bible. In the beginning, God, here we can take God as Father, created everything, right? Created the heavens and the earth. And the Spirit of God was attending to the work of his creation. Was brooding over the surface of the deep, right? Isn't that like how the old King James Version put it, right? Something to that effect. I like that language. I don't know why. But anyway, it, 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 the Spirit of God was present, attending to all the things that the Father was bringing. And how was the Father bringing all these things into existence? By speaking the word of his power. And it's John who comes back later and says, yeah, yeah, yeah. That word, that's the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the Son. First four verses of the Bible, Trinity's already on the, right there in front of us. But we would have never seen it or recognized it for what it was if we didn't have the chance to read it in light of John 1. Right? That's the progressive revelation. So it's like going into this, if you came into the sanctuary and the lights were turned down dim, everything would be here. But we wouldn't be able to make it out. We wouldn't be able to discern it very well. But as 
God's revelation continues. The light gets turned up a little bit more and a little bit more. And as it gets turned up more, you can see it more clearly and clearly. And you start making out, oh, there's a piano, there's a drum set. Oh, and you know whatever else is up here, I don't even know, right? <laughs> but nevertheless, you can start to make out everything in more and more detail. And that's how the doctrine of the Trinity comes to us. And that's why the, the Old Testament has a less clear revelation of the Trinity than the New Testament does. But there's one decisive event that absolutely forces the doctrine of the Trinity onto us, and that's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Once the Son of God becomes incarnate in Jesus Christ, there's, you have to have an account of this. And the only account that fits with the biblical revelation is Trinity. And I can say that with confidence because this doctrine has been tested and tried by every kind of deviant teaching and imagination of man to try to figure out some other way to think about God than the way that the Bible compels us to. And every single one of those alternative ways has been found to be unable to be squared with Scripture. The only way that squares with Scripture is our orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. And that's what we're talking about here. Well, the biblical revelation has several points to it. First of all, as you've seen out of Bob Vink, there's just one God. And Bob Vink gives you some scripture quotes for that. We can think about Deuteronomy 6.5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, which really does mean that he is your one and only, that he, you are to love him with everything you've got. You are to be exclusively devoted to him. But in order for that to be the right thing for you to do, there can't be two gods. Because if there were two gods, you'd need to have split, split allegiance, split devotion. But because there's only one God, you can love the Lord your God with all you've got and not have any questions or reservations about it. There's just one God. If you're going to count how many gods there are, the answer to that question is always one. It's never three. There's not three gods. There's just one God that's fundamental. Otherwise, we have polytheism or tritheism, if you will. We have three different individuals who we call God. We have one individual God, but that God is a mystery who exists tripersonally for eternity. So, one God. Matthew 4, 1 Corinthians 8, Ephesians 4, James 2. You believe that God is one? Even the demons believe and shudder. God is one. We know that all those sacrifices of the idols are nothing because there's just one God. So God is one. And yet scripture makes it clear that God is three persons. One of the ways that's, I think, most interesting to think about that is the name for God, Yahweh. Yahweh is a specific name for the God of Israel as he reveals himself to his people. It's the name that he gives Moses when Moses says, who shall I say is sending me? And it's the name that is, is it's, it's almost, if you will, it's like the personal name of God. He's giving you your, the right to call on him by name. And so Yahweh, it's a Hebrew word and a Hebrew name. But one of the things that's really interesting to look at is that in the New Testament, Yahweh is the father, Yahweh is the son, and Yahweh is the spirit. 
And so in Psalm 110, for example, that's where David says, the Lord said to my Lord. Actually, it's Yahweh said to Adonai, right? It's Yahweh said to Lord as title. Okay, so we have Yahweh like Father speaking to Lord as Messiah, Son of God. So here we have a bit of Trinity already at work. Jesus puts a point on it later because he puts the question to the people and he says, whose son is the Messiah, the Christ, in Matthew? And uh, the answer, Matthew 24, I believe that is, and the answer is that, well, the people couldn't answer it, but Jesus quotes that psalm and says, how is it that David said, they say the son of David, and he says, well, then how is it that David calls him Lord? And what you see there is that the Father is being, is being associated with Yahweh, and then the Lord is being associated with the Son who becomes incarnate. Mark 1 opens by talking about, well, I have it just a page over here. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. In the Old Testament, the Lord there is Yahweh. Mark opens up his gospel by saying, Yahweh is Jesus Christ, the Son incarnate in Jesus Christ. One name for God, Father and Son, both Yahweh. The author of Hebrews actually talk, uses the name Yahweh, its association with Yahweh, when he's, talking, when he's quoting the, uh, the Old Testament. And he, sa- and he says, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes out of Psalm 95, I believe it is, and the quote is actually Yahweh speaking to his people. And he says, as the Holy Spirit says, and he's referring to Yahweh. You can also think about the baptismal text where we see Father, Son, and Spirit all together. The Father speaking, the Spirit descending in the form of the dove, the Son incarnate being baptized. I've already talked about creation and how in Genesis 1, read in light of John 1, you see all three persons at work in creation. And we can think also about the various Trinitarian formulas like we saw in the Great Commission, like I quoted from 2 Corinthians with the benediction that God places in the opening of 1 Peter 1, 2 has a kind of benediction as well that's Trinitarian. And so numerous places in Scripture identify all three persons simultaneously together as one God. And this, the Great Commission is a particularly helpful one. If you're looking for a quick proof text, you can't hardly find a better one in Scripture than this because the word name here is singular. And then it gives three names. It gives three persons. So there's one name for one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons. So you can't really do much better than that for a quick proof text if that's the kind of thing you need to be at hand sometime. Well, the other thing that we could do, and I don't need to repeat what Bob Inc. has done, is you can walk through and say, okay, is the Father divine? Bible's very explicit about this. Is the Son divine? Very explicit. John 1, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, absolutely clear. The Son is divine. And the, and the Holy Spirit as well. And Bob Inc. has a nice little discussion of that, including the personality of the Holy Spirit. And so I'll just refer you to that. I've got notes on all that. We can, if you have questions on that, we can talk about that some more. 
but uh, I would refer you there. Let me just take a moment now and sort of summarize for us what what are what's what's the core teaching? If you distill all of Scripture and put the pieces together about the personality of God, what are we talking about? Well, the first principle is just this. It's where we started. There's just one God. There's one divine being. There's not three beings. There's not three individuals. When we talk about the threeness of God, we're not talking about beings or individuals. There's only one divine being, one divine individual, one divine essence, or usia for the Greek, or substance in the Latin are the terms that, that have been used in the tradition to refer to the oneness of God. And yet there are three distinct persons, or hypostases in the Greek, or subsistences in the Latin, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, let me just make a comment here for a second. Be careful not to fall into a trap. Don't think of the divine nature as something over here, the one thing, and then over here we have Father, Son, and Spirit who equally share in this one thing, like the one thing, the divine nature is like an orange or something, and there are three things that are all eating the orange or sharing or the orange, you know, they equally own the orange or something like that because now you have four things going on. That's not the way to think about it. I know this kind of gets abstract a little bit, right? There's just, do I dare say it? There's just one orange. But the orange exists simultaneously. In this case, there's just one God, one divine nature who exists simultaneously, eternally, as Father, Son, and Spirit. So the way to think about this is that there's, there's one being who exists in three ways eternally. And the ways of the, the, the divine existence are the persons. So that the one God has always existed in three ways, as Father, as Son, and as Spirit. Now there is an, another error that people make, and that's called modalism. It's okay to say that the, the Father is one mode of the divine existence and the Son is another mode of the divine existence or way of, the, of, of God's existence. It's okay to say that, but modalism, the error, says, well, he was the Father, became the Son, and now is the Spirit. No, the three modes or ways or manners of the divine existence are co-eternal. There's never been a time when the Father was not the Father, when the Son was not the Son, and when the Spirit is not the Spirit. They have existed eternally, simultaneously, as the three modes of the divine existence have ever been and ever will be. That might raise some questions. We'll see. Okay, so... The second principle, then, is that you have the distinct persons. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. They are distinct modes of the divine existence, personal modes of the divine existence. Not three beings, one being who exists three ways eternally, and those ways are personal ways. I mean, just the glory and the wonder of our God. Thirdly, the whole undivided essence of God belongs equally to each of the three persons. 
Now let me say that again. The whole being of God, all that which the divine attributes that you've talked about refer to, that belongs equally to the Father and to the Son and to the Spirit. One, one of the implications of that is that the Son is just as fully and equally divine as is the Father. And the Spirit is just as fully and equally divine as is the Son and the Father. That the Son is not lesser God or inferior God or, or God in a little weaker form or God with, in a derivative form or something like that. He is, as Calvin said, God in himself. Each of the three persons is God in himself. And this is why when Philip asked Jesus, show us the Father and it will suffice in John 14. Do you remember what Jesus says? This is one of my favorite sort of, just it always blows me away and I talk about it all the time. And yet it never ceases to amaze me. Because Jesus' response to Philip when Philip asks, show us the Father and it suffices, is Philip, have I been with you this long and you still don't know me? Be careful not to fall into the trap of thinking that there's some kind of more glorious God behind the God incarnate. That the Son is kind of all right as God, but the Father is somehow a little fuller God, a little bit more God, a little bit... No, the fullness of Godhead dwelled in him bodily. The Son is fully and equally divine with the Father. And that's why Jesus goes on and says, don't you know? What he's not saying is that he is the Father because he explains himself and says, don't you know or believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Though the Son is distinct from the Father, yet because the Son and the Father and the Spirit are just the manners in which God himself exists. Wherever the Son is, you have the fullness of God. Wherever the Father is, you have the fullness of God. Wherever the, and of course, they are all three everywhere present. So that's another discussion for another time. But nevertheless, the Son is just as fully God as the Father and as the Spirit. Fourthly, the person and operation of the three persons now, you can only say this after the last principle, because if we said it before, we get it, it would start messing us up, I think. But having said the last one, don't forget the last principle about the full equality of Father, Son, and Spirit as God when I say this, that the person and operation of the three persons is marked by a certain definite order. In other words, the Father is first. The Son is second. The Spirit is third. That's not because the Son is less God than the Father, or the Spirit is less divine than the Father and the Son. Think of it this way for just a second. Now, this is, there's no real good analogy for the Trinity, but we can use this as an illustration of this particular point. You're sitting here in this room together, right? Now, here you have three staff members on the church, pastoral staff members on the church, they're sitting in a definite order. That order does not imply hierarchy or rank. Now, there may be those things, right? There is a senior pastor sitting among them. 
<laughs> but, but the order in which they're sitting is just one, two, three. And that doesn't necessarily mean anything else besides one, two, three. It's a definite order in which, in this case, the three persons of God are revealed to us with a definite kind of order. And that order is more than just accidental. And yet it doesn't mean that there's other kinds of order than hierarchy or superiority. Does that make sense? So we have three equal persons, and yet each of the persons has his own operation or manner of operating or manner of acting. The Father wills and acts as the Father. The Spirit wills and acts as the Spirit, and the Son likewise. Just one God, one will, but that one will is willed by the Father as a Father, and by the Son as a Son, and by the Spirit as the Spirit. They each have just one will in creation, but the manner of the Father's acts in creation are according to his fatherhood, and the manner of the Son's acts in the creation are according to his sonship, and the manner of the Spirit's acts in creation are according to his spirithood. So there's a definite order. Now that order can be expressed like this. All things are from the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit. Creation was from the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. Our redemption is from the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. Your glorification, our glorification, is going to be from the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. That's the order. From, through, and in reflects that order. Now that order is also reflected internally within the Godhead because the Father begets the Son and the Son does not beget the Father. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son. But the Father and the Son do not proceed from the Spirit. So the order as, that is revealed to us in their external works also reflects an internal relationship between the three persons. And yet, always remember, all three are equally and fully God, divine. Well, that kind of summarizes most of what I want to say. Let me, let me just come back and make a couple more points of application, then we'll turn to questions for the rest of our time. And one of those applications is to think about... Um, Worship. You know, sometimes people get, have the question, what, who do I pray to? Is it okay to pray to the Son? Is it okay to pray to the Spirit? And the answer to that is yes, it is. But really we're praying to God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus teaches us to relate to God as our Father. And thus he teaches us to call out to God as Father. And so we usually pray to the Father through the Son in the Spirit, but yet there's nothing to be hung up about in this because you're praying to the one living God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's you can pray to the Son and you can pray to the Spirit for you're praying to the one God who exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. So, so prayer, our praise, and so forth. Remember, we don't believe in three gods. We just believe in one God, and we ought to learn how to relate to him according to his three persons. The one God, 
in three persons in relationship with us. Okay, so that's, that's where I'll leave that. So questions. I had one question that was turned in ahead of time, and it had to do, I think, with the use of the term Elohim and how the term Elohim is plural. In the Hebrew, Elohim is a plural word, and yet it's almost always translated as just God, singular. And what's going on with this? And then the question is, well, is, aren't, aren't we taught to think of God as Elohim, as a plural in reference to God, as somehow indicating the Trinity because of its plural form? And Bavink comes back and says, actually, that's the way people used to think about that, but that's not really the right way to think about that. And I think Bavink's right about this. Um, far be it for me to disagree with Bavink anyway, unless I have a very compelling reason to. But, but Bavink, I think, is right about this. The term, the plural there, is, you know, the word Elohim is used by a lot of different ancient Near Eastern cultures as a reference to God, or their equivalent of it as a reference to God and so forth. It's, it doesn't necessarily designate anything specifically Trinitarian about our God, and it's not used that way in Scripture. It's used that way more sort of like the rural we and so forth, more as a, as a statement to the fullness of the divine being and and not as a, a specific designation to his tri-personality. The, the problem almost would be that if you actually take it as a plural in reference to the three persons, that it would become very much confused, I think, with the idea that there's actually three gods. Because the term is really God, and if you make that plural, it's gods, and that's actually a heresy. Does that make sense? because we don't believe in polytheism. We believe in one God. So the term has a plural form, but it refers to just one, the reference is just to one being and to one thing. And we shouldn't press the idea that actually that's, that's a, a, some kind of soft way of indicating the Trinity too far, because it can actually work to get you into trouble for one thing. And it doesn't seem to be that that was the intent of the way the term was used and how it, how it was derived as well. So that was one question. I hope that answered the question a little bit there. Uh, other questions? How's the question? How do the questions work, Wes? Okay. So one was, is the angel of the Lord or the angel of the covenant to be identified with God in a way different than angels generally? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. These are going to work me a little bit, huh? <laughs> um, the general sense, and there's, let me just say this, there's some disagreement about this. I mean, very conservative, Bible-believing Orthodox Christian theologians and Bible scholars and so forth will have, there, there's, there's some disagreement about exactly what we're supposed to make of the angel of the Lord. Um, the general consensus is that the angel of the Lord appears to be a manifestation of God and that that manifestation has frequently through the history of the church, including by many, many reformed theologians, 
been connected to the Son of God, a kind of pre-incarnate, if you will, uh, manifestation of the Son of God visiting his people, uh, working, communicating as a messenger, as it were. Now, I'm okay with that. I don't have uh, a lot of issue with that. I, I just think we need to be careful sometimes that where the Bible um, leaves a little bit of, of mystery, that we respect that sometimes and not over-conclude in some cases. Uh, but nevertheless, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't uh, recognize that here we certainly have. Now, let, but let me say this. The, the danger, the one thing that I would be concerned about in this line of interpretation is that we remember that when, when God shows up in human form or even in angelic form, that this is not incarnation. Incarnation is a unique act of God that takes place at a specific point in history in which he unites himself to a human nature to humanity in, an, in a way that is never reversed. He never ceases to be united. The Son of God is forever united to a human nature, not limited by, not constrained by his humanity, but nevertheless forever united. He didn't cease to be human at death or at resurrection or at ascension. He remains human. He shall return in glory as a human, as the God-man, and he shall forever be the God-man. And in that way, he's taken us up and our nature up into fellowship with him in the most intimate sort of way that no other creature, you know, God has never become incarnate, never entered into that kind of union with any other creature, not even with angelic nature. So when we do see God appearing in the Old Testament, whether in human form or angelic form or something like that, remember, this is a, a manifestation of God that falls in the category of a revelation of God. It's not actually um, um, an incarnation, nor is it God himself, but it's rather a kind of representation of God accommodated to our finite capacities to be able to see and understand because God in himself is invisible and so on. So yes, the angel of the Lord, I think, is a special reference and not just to be put on a plane with all other angelic messengers and beings in Scripture. It seems to me that, that, the, that the sort of the best line of interpretation is, yes, angel of the Lord, there's something special going on here. And so I guess that's actually the question, the most direct answer to the question. Can people be saved with a wrong view of the Trinity? Ooh, that's a good one, too. Um, people can be under, certainly people can be saved without understanding the Trinity. Uh, which one of us does understand the Trinity fully anyway? And so we are all people who live in awe of the mystery of God, and the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the clearest displays and reminders of how completely transcendent and other and mysterious our God is. In fact, all the doctrine of God speaks to that and testifies to that. But the Trinity, we certainly are up against a mystery here. And so the, the Trinity is one of those places where we're reminded about how small our finite capacities actually are and how insufficient they are to really comprehend the fullness of God's being and glory and majesty and so on. And so we can certainly be saved with a partial and incomplete knowledge of the Trinity because all of us have a partial and incomplete knowledge of God. 
But the question becomes about error. What if you have an incorrect concept of God? What if you think God's just one? Well, I do think you can be saved that way, but here's the difference, right? That, that you can think that in error, but once you are shown from Scripture the better way to conceive of God, it should become plain to you. And if in response to that, you start to dig in and entrench yourself on it, no, 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 no. Then you're digging in in really what is unbelief, a denial of the revelation of God as he actually is. And what you're showing is, is that you weren't somebody who believed with an imperfect understanding. You're someone who didn't actually believe in the true and the living God. Do you see the difference there? So we can all have many errors in our way of thinking and yet have genuine faith. Now, there's some things that you can't, but there's just some things you can't deny and actually be in the faith. You can come to faith without an understanding, but once you are shown and taught, you should be coming along. And if you start digging in and saying, can't be, no way, then you're showing that you're not really of the faith. Now, let me just add a little add-on. You know, the first sort of heresy on Christ and Trinity that the church had to deal with was a, was a belief called Ebionites. Ebionites were people who accepted Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, but could not accept him to be divine because they were Jewish background believers who couldn't grasp Trinity. Now these people were digging in their heels and rejecting the claim that Jesus was an appropriate object of worship, one to whom we should pray, and was divine. This is in the first century. This is, this is you know, while John is still alive and very soon after the death of John the Apostle. This is one of the earliest things. You actually had Jewish people saying, yeah, we'll accept Jesus as the Messiah, but we can't accept him as divine. And the church said, you've got to accept him as divine or your faith is not of our faith. Does that help? Um, let's see. I think you hit this one a little bit in the front, but a good, good summary recap would be good. What real negative effects does the church suffer with an improper view of the Trinity? Yeah, so, so this is one of those territories. So what negative effects does the church suffer from an improper view of the Trinity? Well, one of the things to point out right off is just to follow up on what I just said. This is a fundamental doctrine of the faith. If you, you know, there are many things that divide denominations. Should we baptize covenant children? Do we recognize the children of believing households as covenant children? Do we understand the doctrine of the covenant and so forth, of the covenants with God and so forth? I mean, lots of things like this that divide Christians, and we look across and say, these are our brothers and sisters. You know, these are, these are people who believe in the same Lord that I believe in, who worship the same God that I do, and, and this, you know, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet we're divided. Trinity's different territory. Differences over the Trinity means you're not of the faith. This is truly the place where the word heresy is appropriate. If somebody denies our view of saving grace, we should be very slow to use the word heresy because there are many people who have different views of saving grace. I think they're all wrong. 
but are genuine believers who worship the same God that we do. But if they don't accept the doctrine of the Trinity, then they truly are heretics. If they deny the deity of Christ, they're heretics. And what I mean by that is they're not of the faith. They're not of the faith. So that's one way to answer it. By getting the Trinity wrong, you can take yourself right out of the faith. But by weak or incomplete understandings of the Trinity, then I would go back to the kinds of things I talked about at the beginning of my, my lesson. And that is, we be, we, how rich is the teaching of adoption once you begin to understand that, that the Son of God incarnate relate, he tells us to start calling his Father our Father and that he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. That begins to open up your mind about what, what kind of intimacy does our God seek with us anyway? He's not content with superficial relationships with his people. He's bringing us into the depths of the knowledge and the understanding of himself. Why? Because he is the most wonderful, delightful, enjoyable thing of all. And in his love for us, He's bringing us into himself, which is the most wonderful of all places to be. That's his love. He shows us on the cross. So thinking Trinitarianly, having that as a working concept in our theology, really begins to open up the wonder of all the, what, of, of the kindness that our God is lavishing on us in Jesus Christ. Are we to understand that within the Trinity there is a hierarchy or a differentiation of authority. Does the Father have authority over the Son? Does mm -hmm. the Son have authority over the Spirit? So. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the short answer would be no. There's no hierarchy, and there's no, uh, there's no sense in which, there's no ontological sense, let me say, in which the Father has... Um, a superior position to the son so that the son is always just sort of receiving commands all the time and, and that's just that. Nevertheless, there is that order that I talked about within the Trinity and all things are from the Father and through the Son and in the Spirit and that does speak to a kind of, of relationship between the three persons in which that order is manifest. It's not an order of equality or inequality. They are equally God. But there is that one will of God being willed by the Father in a fatherly way, you might say, and being willed by the Son in a sonship way, <laughs> according to this sonship, and the Spirit likewise. And so the Father's way is as source, as origin, as sort of there's a directiveness to it. The word Father really is an appropriate term for him because he functions fatherly. The word son really is an appropriate word for the son because within the Trinity, he, he is the son, begotten of the father, eternally begotten, doesn't have a beginning, but nevertheless begotten of the father. So there is a father-son relationship there. Now, it's different from our father-son relationship because 
there's a generational difference there. We become fathers at a point in time through the act of begetting children. Children become our sons when they're begotten. There's no sort of beginning point with the begottenness of the, of the Son of God. So it's a little different. It's just an analogy, if you will, between fatherhood here and divine fatherhood. And yet there really is something about the father where he is fatherly. And thus there's something about the son. And so it's appropriate that the father assumes the prior place and the Son the second place, and the Spirit the third place within the Trinity. So I, I would be careful to think of, not to think of it as the Son being under the authority of the Father and the Spirit or something like that so much as though there's an ontological basis for that, like our sons are under their Father's authority. But there is the sense that the Son is the Son. And that's, and that's the manner of the Son's existence in relationship to the Father. That's maybe subtle, that difference. But I think it's important. It's at, it's at least important that we don't think of it in a way that implies the subordination of the Son to the Father or the Spirit to the Son and the Father, even if we acknowledge. So in our Reformed theology, we have something called the Pactum Salutis or the Covenant of Redemption which is an agreement mutually made between the Father and the Son in eternity about the redemption of humanity. But in that covenant relationship, the Father takes the role of the Father and the Son takes the role of the, of the Son. Now, they both are in perfect and full agreement, willing this one thing together. But the Father wills it as the Father does. The Son wills it as our redemption as the Son does. And so the Father is sort of defining terms as it were. The Son is accepting the role of the one through whom all of this is going to be achieved and thus offering himself up to be our Savior, meaning he, he's agreeing at that time from eternity to come and to save us by becoming incarnate and dying on the cross. So that's an example of what I mean. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the most common um, error and misconception with the Trinity in today's Christianity? Yeah, I think the most common one that I encounter in, in evangelical circles is what I would refer to as social Trinitarianism. And it's this idea that we conceive of the Trinity almost as three friends in a tight relationship together. And the problem with that is that you end up with three distinct beings who each sort of have their own will and each have their own identity, as it were, and they just sort of have a really tight bond. <laughs> and that's not actually the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. The orthodox doctrine of the Trinity is that there's one God who exists in three ways eternally. And, and so that, that social analogy, now, there, you know, that analogy is ancient. It goes back to the Cappadocian fathers lived in the fourth century. And um, in like the mid, like around 350 give or take a few decades there. And so the Cappadocian fathers actually at one point say, well, the Trinity is a bit like, oh, who are the three? Anyway, three of the disciples, and I forget which one. Uh, maybe it's Peter, James, and John or something like this. But it's three of the disciples, and they're saying they're, they're all three human, they're all th and so forth, but they're, but they're three individuals in some sense. And every analogy fails. It breaks down. It's useful to make one point, but it ends up being a heresy if you take that as your complete model of the Trinity. And unfortunately, I think we have people who have taken that kind of a view, a kind of modernized 
you. And I think that comes from the fact that people have a really hard time understanding that what the term person means without um, assuming that it has to imply individuality, that we actually have three individuals rather than, rather than just one individual who exists in three eternal, personal ways. Might seem like a subtle difference, but it's important. One way, social Trinitarianism is carrying you towards polytheism a little bit. Three gods. We've got to hold on to our monotheism. That is all that I have turned in. Do we have any more from the, the crowd? I'm here all night. That's right. <laughs> this is your chance. I'm not asking your questions in class next week, so if you got them. Very good. All right, well, Dr. Boggess, thank you so much uh, for, for doing this for thank us today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And then I will uh, pray for us. Okay. Dismiss. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, Lord, we thank you for bringing us here today, that we, we get the freedom to come and gather and, and learn more about you. Um, we thank you that we can stream this so people can be at home and learn be part of this and learn more about you with us and father ultimately we, we pray that you would um make us people who desire truth and so that as we as we read the scriptures as we pray as we as we work through our process of sanctification lord that we would we would come to know what real truth is and come to know more and more about you be with us now take us home safely i pray these things in jesus name amen mm. real quick for next meeting so we've been meeting the last tuesday of every month and we have a, a little hiccup because of Thanksgiving coming up. So our next meeting is December 1st, um, and we're covering Creation and Providence, uh, Chapter 11, and Chapter 12, The Origin, Essence, and Purpose of Man. So those are pages 144 through 202, uh, December, 7, December 1st at 7 o'clock, right back here. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I, I'm usually working with seminary students, you know, which is yeah. kind of like I kind of sign readings. And, <laughs> and, 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 and you got to watch yeah. your language while you're.